1: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, co-hosting with WFIU News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. This week, we're talking about ways to create more affordable housing in Bloomington for people experiencing homelessness or instability or extremely low income. And we have four guests with us today. Forrest Gilmore is the Executive Director of Beacon Incorporated. MAYOR JOHN HAMILTON FROM THE CITY OF BLOOMINGTON IS JOINING US TODAY, ANDREW BRADLEY FROM PROSPERITY INDIANA, HE'S THE POLICY DIRECTOR, AND KYLE ARBUCKLE WHO IS FROM THE NATIONAL LOW INCOME HOUSING COALITION ADVOCACY GROUP AND HE IS AN ORGANIZER WITH AN ADVOCACY ORGANIZER. IF YOU HAVE QUESTIONS OR COMMENTS FOR US, YOU CAN FOLLOW US ON TWITTER AT NOON EDITION. YOU CAN ALSO SEND US YOUR QUESTIONS FOR THE SHOW at news at indianapublicmedia.org so thank you all for being here with us today this is uh, an extremely difficult topic we know that we know it's complex we know there are lots of um issues that everybody in this uh, on this panel today are wrestling with and i really appreciate your being here i want to start the program Um, by talking with both, both uh, Mayor John Hamilton and Forrest Gilmore about um, the issue that Sarah mentioned in the, in the uh, billboard uh, promoting our show about the, uh, the ordinance that came before the city council uh, just last month um, that would have addressed people being in, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness being in public spaces in the community. So Mayor Hamilton, can you give us uh, your take on that and explain to us what happened with that legislation?
2: Sure. Uh, Bob, it's nice to be with you and Sarah and Forrest and uh, Kyle and Andrew. Thanks for all being together. Appreciate that. Um, You know, look, this has been an extraordinarily challenging past 12 or 13 months, of course, in so many ways with the pandemic. And it has certainly been a, a, a very difficult time for many of our residents uh, in Bloomington who have lost income, lost housing, faced food insecurity, um, uh, health insecurity, and many others, uh, many other challenges. And we're still seeing that, of course. And um, we did uh, the particular uh, item uh, event you talked about was one part of a you know, really a really tough year when when so many people were going through difficult things. And one way that um, was manifest was people, some people started camping out in city park, in particular Seminary Park. That was the one that seemed to be, uh, get the most uh, activity. And that was against, is against city ordinance and city law. And um, also, of course, during the winter is very dangerous uh, being out in sub-zero very cold temperatures and in public rights of way and others and there was a you know really an intense community effort of how do we help people who are uh, without housing uh, get through uh, each day uh, and much less a winter Um, it's worth reminding that you know an eviction protection we have very aggressive eviction protections in place but that doesn't help you if you don't have a apartment if if you know that protects if you're protect you from being evicted but if you're homeless it doesn't do much so there's been a lot of work and I'm sure we'll talk about the work to expand shelters and offer uh, different alternatives Um, but there was a community a big community debate about whether to change that law that city ordinance that says you cannot sleep overnight in city parks and ultimately the city council voted not to change that law Uh, but I think everybody involved in that discussion knew how important it was to keep working on creating real uh, safe and uh, long-term housing for folks who are currently experiencing homelessness.
1: Boris, how about your position uh, on that short-term solution and, and what have uh, you know, what have you been doing at Beacon and, and Shalom since then?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love a quote by um, Harry Hopkins who worked for the, FDR administration where he says that people don't eat in the long run they eat every day and I think that's important for us to remember that that although it's really important for long-term solutions and addressing those we also have to remember that um, that basic life functions are something that everybody has to do every but every day people need to sleep they need to eat they need to use restrooms and um, even though we can all pair together on long-term solutions we also have to think about the, the short-term solutions of, of what people need in the in the immediate and the urgent um, situation. I mean our, our position around the parks was pretty simple in that it's a constitutional right if people don't have the ability to access alternative uh, accommodations that they have a right to exist and sleep and be in public spaces. Um, and uh, that the current law is actually unconstitutional. Um, and so we were hoping that the, that, that the city council and the mayor's office would find a way to recognize that constitutional issue and come to um, a position that allowed for um, addressing that. Um, that. And that doesn't take away from our willingness and desire to work with the city around and, and other organizations around the long-term solutions, but um, but the short-term ones are also really important. We did open a short-term winter shelter um, for to you know that was incredibly difficult to to get open and the only reason we were able to do it is because many codes are currently waived due to the COVID state of emergency. But we did manage to do that. We had as many as seventy people in that shelter, which just showed an incredible demand um, for homelessness i don't think we 've ever quite seen this level of street homelessness in the winter um, in at least my ten years of uh, being the executive director here at Beacon so it was a crisis point a very serious issue and um, and uh, there you know we needed lots of flexibility to deal with a very very complicated and dangerous issue
1: mm-hmm. Forest, I, I did. I think I remember reading um, a column in the Herald Times by law professor Alex Tanford that, that suggests that maybe the law isn't so clear on sleeping in parks. Are you familiar with that? Did you read that?
3: I didn't actually see that that piece, and I know there's certainly debate within the legal community. Um, I, there are a couple of things that I know for sure. One is that the at least the Obama administration was pretty pretty clear about it. It's in its its Justice Department, and the Martin v. Boise Ninth Circuit Court decision um, was pretty clear about it, and that. The ordinance that got passed in Indianapolis was passed under the threat of a lawsuit from ACLU. So there's definitely a lot of legal support for that basic uh, concept. And it comes down to a, you know, a fundamental principle is that if you don't have uh, a private space to access um, and you are, and it's illegal to access a public space, where can you fundamentally exist? And, and uh, that's the core of the issue. It's not about you know, if there's enough places for people to go, we want people to be able to have the, those spaces. It's about what happens when people don't have alternative accommodations and and um, and how do we decriminalize that that uh, basic, you know, issue of being um, alive and doing basic life function, sleep, eating, and just
1: existing. Right. John, did you want to respond to that?
3: Yeah. I, I actually think there's probably a lot of
2: agreement on this about the, no, we don't believe uh, in the city about criminalizing homelessness. And that's really a fundamental kind of one of the fundamental legal questions is do, do people get arrested or, or, or or uh, criminalizing um, behaviors if they have no other options for where to be? We, we, we agree that people have the right to, to be and. and actually have worked very hard to try to make sure there are spaces from the overnight stride center to the, you know, to the emergency shelters that, that Forrest has mentioned. And there are others that many terrific partners have pulled together to try to create opportunities for those. And I think there's, you know, there may be some debate about exactly where uh, and how, but I think there's a lot of agreement that we shouldn't and don't criminalize people who who are poor and who have, who are trying to find better options. And I think the community's done a, a, you know, it is a short-term crisis and the community in the last 12 months has done extraordinary um, things to improve. As Forrest mentioned, we we had probably some nights with 250 people in shelter, which is just an extraordinary number for our community. Uh, And it was through opening new shelters and hotel rooms and new, you know, expanding shelters that we have that, that the community came together to help, Tech. We, You know, we had an individual die sleeping uh, uh, overnight in the park. It's not safe in freezing weather. Um, and it's been really uh, important to have the community step forward and try to create options. So I, I don't think the courts are probably where this will get solved, but it's going to be day to day trying to make sure we get better futures for everybody.
1: All right. Thank you very much to, to both of you for outlining that issue. That's that's one that probably is going to be with us for a while. I want to bring in Andrew Bradley and Kyle Arbuckle, and I know both of your organizations are are partners. Andrew's with Prosperity Indiana, and and Kyle is with the National Low Income Housing Coalition, and I visited both of their websites, and I see that they work together on a lot of things and, and share information. And I just wanted to, um, I'll ask Andrew first, and then Kyle to talk about this this greater issue, you know, we've got uh, people who are unhoused and unsheltered, but we also have a lot of people that just can't afford a place to live the extremely, extremely low income residents and low income residents. Um, can you talk about how um, significant, how serious that problem is around the state of Indiana and around the rest of our country? And Andrew?
4: Thanks so much, Bob. And thanks for having me on today and to all the other guests here. And, and just saying, I think what we've been talking about so far is some of the outcomes that we see in Indiana, because we haven't addressed the ongoing pre-existing affordable housing crisis. that's only been exacerbated during this COVID pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to lean on some of the data that we have from Kyle's group, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, Um, but Indiana is often cast as this very affordable place to live, but that doesn't bear out when it comes to affordable housing for the population, especially that we're talking about for the extremely low income, um, uh, percent of our population. Um, in Indiana, we see that there are some of the highest cost burdens and the least number of affordable and available units in the entire Midwest. Um, in, uh, in Indiana, for example, 72% of the extremely low income renter households have a severe cost burden, meaning that they're spending 50% or more of their income on housing and statewide, uh, we see that there are only 37 units, um, of affordable and available housing for every 100 extremely low income households. And both of those. Uh, metrics that I mentioned are second worst in the Midwest. So we're really not keeping up with the rest of the Midwest. And a lot of that has to do with how uh, the state is implementing um, federal resources and and some of our state policies. Um, And something that I'd like to mention with that is that we just had a a law that was made um, effective in, um, in February. That actually further restricts locals' ability to um, be able to uh, support renter households when it comes to to their renter rights. It really restricts those local abilities that we've heard discussed so far, um, and it actually expands possibilities for expedited three-day evictions. So, you know, that's kind of the uh, the situation we're in right now. Is that Indiana had this pre-existing housing affordability crisis and the way that we're choosing to make our policy choices threatens to, to further endanger i
5: do want
1: you to weigh in on that
5: yeah um thanks for having me i appreciate it and thanks for andrew that um that's a great introduction of our data um just to go a little bit further into our data andrew pointed out that indiana um i think he said 72 percent of renters are severely cost burdened in monroe county where bloomington is um it's 86%, so it's even higher proportionally. And also, he mentioned the number of affordable and available homes um, for every 100 extremely low-income renters at 37, I believe you said, Andrew. And in Monroe County, it's 17. So we're seeing some really poor outcomes in Monroe County um, that already existed before COVID. Um, and this data comes from the American Community Survey, so we pulled this from the federal government. So um, these, these numbers are hard and real. Um, and yeah, I think Andrew makes the point that you know there's a there's an affordability crisis and a supply crisis, and I think you need to tackle those both head on if you want to address the homelessness crisis. Um, because as the mayor said, there are you know plenty of people that are currently sleeping on the street, but there are also so many people that are on the verge of that as well. Um, so it needs to be a twofold aspect if you really want to see a um, improvement in that area.
1: Kyle. <laughs> Oh, let me follow up really quickly, Kyle. Andrew had talked about um, Indiana not being very good in in the Midwest. I mean, how how do you view it from a from a national standpoint?
5: Um, yeah, I think Indiana ranks fairly high. Uh, I don't know the number off the top of my head. If you give me a second, I can pull that up. But Andrew's right that they are second in the Midwest, um, and in terms of. Uh, Housing supply, they are very low compared to the rest of the country. Um, not as low as you know, a place like California, or New York, or even DC where I live. Um, as those places are extremely, extremely expensive, making the housing unaffordable and unavailable to extreme low income renters. But um, Andrew's right in that Indiana is not the affordability haven that we believe it is, particularly for extreme low income renters. But like I said, if you give me a second, I can tell you exactly where Indiana ranks in terms of supply.
6: So, Andrew, we've gotten several questions in, but this one about data, uh, perhaps you could could tackle. So the question from Stephen is, what do the people of city or county council think affordable housing is by a numbers standpoint, such as a single parent with two kids? What do they think this person should be able to afford to live?
4: Well, the way that I would approach that is again, I'm going to turn to some of Kyle's organization's data. They say that statewide, in order to afford a two-bedroom house uh, unit, a two-bedroom unit statewide, you need to uh, make $16.32 an hour, um, and yet the average renter wage in Indiana is $14.44. Um, And I do have that for the the Bloomington area. It's actually, it's it's even a little bit more disparate. In order to afford a two-bedroom unit in Bloomington, or at least Monroe County, uh, you need to be earning $16.90 an hour. Uh, But the average renter in Monroe County only makes $10.86. So you can see that is a really wide gap. And what it means is that people will either be spending more um, than what they should of their paychecks just to, to keep a, um, a stable roof over their house or they're going to cut other things. Um, they are going to um, live in a substandard unit. They're going to live in a smaller place than what they need for themselves and their children, or they're going to cut out other essentials um, like food, like savings, like the types of things you need to be able to, uh, to build a career to, to go to school, that kind of
1: thing. Those numbers are pretty dramatic. I think that that gap, which is so much different from, this, from the state gap. Um, Mayor Hamilton, is there anything we're not seeing when you look at those numbers and that gap? Is there anything that makes Bloomington an outlier?
2: No, well, that feels like my reality every day. And, and I know it's the reality of a lot of people in this community. We are the most expensive market in the state, both mm-hmm. for rental and for for home ownership. I do think it's important to remind People that both at the national level and at the state level, we've had a decades long um, decline in the investment from the federal level in affordable housing. And the main thing that's done these days is the low income housing tax credit, which is helpful. But there's been a real, um, in my view, dereliction over decades of real support for the housing uh, uh, needs of our country. We're a wealthy country. We should do better. And at the state level, you know, we, we planned to put inclusionary zoning in place in Bloomington f- five years ago when I came in, and the state legislature stepped up and said, illegal, we're not going to let you do it. Um, now, that's just one of the tools. But as Kyle mentioned, you know, they keep taking away tools at the local level. Now, that being said, you know, I think this community feels very strongly and we work very hard to address these challenges, but they're they're real and Homelessness is one very visible aspect of this, but there are so many people who are less visible, who are struggling, paying way more than 30 percent of their income for housing. And it's a combination of supply. You know, we've created about 900 units of affordable housing in the last five years just by hook and by crook and however we can do it. Uh, and it's a question of wages and trying to improve those. But it's it's it is a real it is a real threat and the homeless um, tip of the iceberg kind of, which is most visible is a, is a warning signal that we've got to keep doing better on this.
6: Mayor Hamilton, you just touched on this a little bit, but another question we just got in says, I grew up in Bloomington and I've seen it change over the years. And all I've seen is apartments going up, but not for low income people. So just, just your reaction to that. And then maybe also Forrest can weigh in when, when you're finished.
2: Well, uh, there are a lot of market rate apartments that go up for sure. Um, Actually, I probably don't have time to go through them all, but we have, we do have very substantial investment over the last five years in affordable units as well. As I mentioned, nearly a thousand new units. We've got when it's, it ranges from for poor elderly, we have the first Medicaid qualified, um, uh, you know, care care facility that opened up recently to, a dedicated housing force and I go way back and you know Crawford one and two are are dedicated toward chronic homeless uh, individuals and we've gotten scores of people into those kind of units and we've just opened up Southern Knolls and Kinsler Flats is opening soon and uh, uh, you know we, we're we're converting um, uh, expanding our public housing and the Crescent uh, has, has opened with 115 units so but I don't want to disagree that we should be and could be and ought need to be doing more. It's just a question of finding the resources and, and uh, assembling those. Now, let me also give credit very briefly. It really matters that the federal government has just put in place this American Rescue Plan, and that offers some really important opportunities to invest uh, in one-time ways uh, to improve uh, our situation. And, and thank goodness the federal government has stepped up with some substantial resources.
1: Let me follow up quickly before Forrest uh, jumps in and and asks John, do those affordable housing units, I think you mentioned that there have been 900, do they all meet the the guidelines that um, Andrew uh, and Kyle's group have set out there? I mean, can someone who's making $10 and whatever it was, an hour afford to live in the places that... have
2: gone up? Well, that's a really good question. No, not for all 900 of those. They That really ranges from people with zero income uh, to people with 120% of median income, but there are definitely, you know, 100 or 150 of recently opened units that are really focused on people with virtually no income. Uh, but it's a whole, that that is a whole range of affordable, long-term affordable uh, apartments. So, and you do have to look at each income band and we we need more at every income band. There's no,
1: I I, I agree with that, right? Uh, Forrest, do you want to offer some thoughts?
3: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, and and I I'm, I appreciate that that the mayor is talking about this in a, in in a way that recognizes no one agency or entity is responsible for the challenge. But that also means we all have to work together for the for the solution but i I, th- I think it's important to understand too that i i've been working with beacon again for a, a decade is over over a decade now and um, and the problem uh, we and we 've been talking about affordable housing as and housing affordability as an issue going back at least that long in our community. Um, And the problem, uh, as I see it on the ground, is that it's not getting actually better or even stabilized, it's getting worse, that it's harder and harder every year for us to be able to help uh, people struggling with poverty, find places to live in our community, and that's gotten harder, uh, not easier. So the the affordable housing issue is not stagnant. Uh, it's getting worse, which means that what we're doing uh, now as a community is not enough, and and um, and we need to take that seriously. I think we need to look at housing affordability as a major crisis and make it the make it a priority, make it the priority in in all of our land and housing decisions. That we we have to put it at the at the forefront. And I'll just add, too, that there was an interesting housing study by Regional Opportunities Initiative, and one of the big things they found is, um, and this might put a little more clarity on on this, is that we actually, a lot of affordable housing comes in the rent range of $400 to $800 in rent per month. And what they found is that our real gap in our community is not in that rental range. We actually have a decent amount of housing in that rental range, but it's the zero to 400. It's the, um, you know, it was referenced earlier people experiencing extreme low income, extreme poverty. That's where in the zero to 400 rental range per month that that's where we'll what we have a major gap and a major crisis in our community. Um, most of the folks who I who are experiencing homelessness or struggling with homelessness that I work with are not going to be able to afford a, five, a $500 to $800 apartment per month, but they might be able to do much better with a zero to 400 range. And that's where the big gap is um, for people experiencing homelessness and people experiencing housing insecurity is that, that lower end range. And so that's where we need to be building um, uh, and expanding uh, in terms of cost. Is, is in that zero to 400 range.
1: We'd love to get your thoughts and your questions. You can send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send them to the show at news at org. I'm glad uh, Mayor Hamilton brought up the different um, levels, the different strata of low income. Um, Kyle Arbuckle and Andrew Bradley, I know in the data that, that Kyle's group sends out, there's low income and then there's the extremely low income and can you talk about those differences and how there are uh, these different levels and how we can address all these levels at once?
5: Um, yeah, Andrew, I can do that if that's okay. Sure. Um, so yeah, we, we do it by HUD's definition. So, um, anything below 80% of area median income is, uh, low income and then anything below 50% is very low income, and then anything below 30% of area median income is extremely low income. Um, now, I think there's a, there's a perfectly good question that's brewing right now about how reliable that type of definition of affordability is because often those area median incomes draw from really wide areas. And there's a push in a lot of different places and HUD is, I think, um, been responsive and they, they don't mind many localities doing this, but doing small area, uh, median, like small area, uh, fair market rent numbers. So decreasing the size of what the area is that you're pulling for that median income. Um, I think that might get at your question. Um, Bob. Yes.
1: Okay. And,
4: and Bob, I, I'd, I'd add to that too, that, um, you know, the, the households we're talking about, even when we're talking about that extremely low income renter household, that's 30% or below of area median income. Like that has a lot of vulnerable populations, but the largest single category are households that are in the labor force. So, you know, while I, I think with Bloomington and I'm a proud IU grad myself, um, I think the conversation can tend to tilt over into, you know, well, you've got a student population and that just explains the way that issue or that all the um, solutions have to do with students. Um, you know, statewide, that 37% of extremely low income households are in the labor force, and only 5% are students. So, when you're talking about solutions statewide, and even for Bloomington, you really need to deal with households that are working, that are also disabled households, and also senior households. Um, and then We've been working on some new data, kind of crunching who's been most affected by COVID um, in terms of housing instability. And this is statewide. But what we saw through um, from April to December, that white households, 27% were likely to not have confidence to pay their next month's rent. But for households of color, that jumps to 41%. Um, 40.7% for black households and 47.3% for Latinx households. So there's a real disparity of who's been affected by COVID when it comes to housing stability. Um, And then that also points to some of the solutions of where we need to make sure we target emergency assistance, but also making sure that they're part of the longer term conversation about housing affordability
5: as well.
1: Kyle, that is or, yeah, I was just going to ask if those numbers are consistent nationally.
5: Um, yeah, more or less, um, when I cross my states, I cover Indiana to in the southeast for our field team. And I believe what they – I wanted to say that, that's a really important point. That's something that I usually bring up when I give a presentation about these uh, data that, yes, most extreme low-income renters in most states are either working, are disabled, or are seniors. So they either are working or can't work or struggle to work. And I think Andrew makes a great point that, you know, these, these are people in the labor force that make usually minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can get into those departments that the mayor mentioned. Um, and I want to follow up on something that the mayor said. He's absolutely right. The federal government has been derelict of their duty um, for decades at this point, And NLIC recognizes that for sure. And I wanted to plug our house campaign that Andrew has been helping us on. I can talk a little bit more about that later. I think we're, still talking about the income levels, but yes, Andrew's is correct in that data. And I think it you know broadly translates widely that we see extremely low-income renters either work or can't work or struggle to find work because they're either disabled or seniors. Um, so they cannot get into those market rate apartments because wages have not kept up with the cost of housing. Wages have not increased at all in this country for decades. And so they have not kept up with the cost of housing. So they can't get into a market rate apartment without subsidy or subsidize um construction.
6: We have a question for the mayor and this one is about the the what will be the old hospital site and how that's going to be developed. The questions from Jenny and she says the city will be the original land owners. Can they make covenants that the site be owner occupied because we need affordable homes?
2: The Short answer is yes Uh, and and let me just let me just give a little frame. I really appreciate Kyle, Andrew, your, your points you're right on. And thank you for the work that you do. Um, you know, every day in Monroe County and mostly in Bloomington, our housing authority has more than 1500 families that are in uh, public housing. And that means they pay no more than 30% of their income. That is the kind of solution that you, that you, you steer the rent, you, you, you link the rent to the income so that people can afford it. Now that's good, but we have huge waiting lists and we don't we, we don't have the resources. The Housing Authority, you know, part of the federal housing program doesn't have the resources to go from thirteen hundred vouchers and two hundred units to we could do twenty five hundred vouchers to help people. We just don't we don't have that resource. But that's really the kind of thing that we that we would like to see. Uh, and, and we do what we can locally and we should do more, I agree with that. On the on the hospital site, um, you know, we bought that land, the the uh, 24 acres, exactly in order to be able to steer it into affordable uh, and other uses that are consistent with the with the community. And we've had a big study, and there's more work to be done. And I expect there will be a lot of affordable housing, both ownership and rental, uh, in that area. Um, it's going to be a partnership with nonprofits and and developers to figure out how do we assemble the the land which the city will own uh, and the developers and the capital and the market and um, you know what's the long-term uh, uh, opportunity there Forrest knows and some of you know i I am strongly committed to to very long-term affordability permanent affordability 99 years or longer so that you're not always chasing your tail and that's a great opportunity to do that at the hospital and Uh, It'll be a multi-year process, but uh, we look forward to seeing some really important new opportunities for people from all walks of life to live in that new neighborhood.
1: I wanted to follow up with Forrest. Uh, I think, um, Kyle, you mentioned we we were talking about incomes. I think it's a good time to try to transfer this to potential solutions and strategies uh, that zero to $400 um, rental number, I mean, Mayor Hamilton talked about, you know, the um, the federal government's help. But what other strategies are there to to be able to provide that kind of housing?
3: Yeah, that's a great question and a really important. And we do have to think locally uh, because we can't count on the state or the federal uh you know, landscape to change in any significant way, but we do have some capacity to change what we do here. Um, I think one of the most important things we need to do is really take, you know, we have a housing trust fund. I think we really need to take that uh, housing trust fund seriously and create a, a re- replenishable source of income for that of, of, of some, some, some substance. Like I, I think we need a kind of a moonshot here around um, uh, the taboo word of, of, of dealing with some kinds of, of, of a tax investment uh, into um, you know, paying for uh, and subsidizing affordable housing in our community. Um, and then we really need to take that seriously and go for it. But we also, I think, need to look at the, you know, the, the private and public partnership uh, one model that really excites me is a, a model out of Austin, Texas called, called Community First Village, where they built a, a very large scale village of tiny homes and, um, and other, um, you know, uh, housing access for folks that comes in the range of somewhere, I think it peaks at around $375 per month uh, in terms of rent. So it creates that affordability and that access um, for people. And they, they did. Again, it was a major uh, uh, public-private partnership that that raised um, a substantial amount of money to start it and get it going. And it's been expanding ever since. And I, I think that's one really extraordinary model we can look at. They have over 500 units uh, uh, in that um space now and um it's very impressive and and a model i think that we should explore both on the city and county level to we need to obviously deal with uh finding the land where we could do something like that and then coming up with the income to do it but but again i I really think we need to be thinking moonshot here we need to be thinking um uh big and and first priority and it's got to drive all the decisions we make as a community uh, because it is a it is a tremendously uh, terrible issue that is getting worse, and um, we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result.
1: Give me an example of a moonshot for us.
3: Well, those were two right there: <laughs> okay. uh, a big tax tax increase, and then um, uh, to to uh, address you know uh, making that housing trust fund replenishable. My, you know, I think we should be trying to put something like five million dollars a year into that housing trust fund at least. Um, which could help us build, you know, an affordable complex a year um, uh, uh, just from local money. Uh, that doesn't include what's coming out from other resources. And, um, uh, and you know, going for this public-private par- partnership to kind of create some kind of tiny home village of, of great significance similar to community first, those would be the two things that I would want to um, uh, shoot for the moon, so to speak, to, to, uh, to, to try and accomplish locally
1: john is that something the cdfi the the could be involved with
2: well you're yes you're mentioning the cdfi community development financial institution uh, cdfi friendly city uh bloomington which is a new organization that's brought about 20 million dollars of outside money in to help do some of the affordable housing projects that are here and look i i advocated a tax increase I, Forrest, and i are on the same page on this uh, i didn't win and 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 he he supported it um tried to in the city council uh, a year ago or so um uh, but i totally agree that we need income locally to support it um it is important to note these are these are regional problems you can't we're not a we're not an island uh, in terms of solving these issues uh both from resources and from programs uh, and there's a really wonderful group that's led by our local uh, United Way and our local community foundation folks who are convened to talk about housing insecurity at a regional level. But uh, I think both of those are, are things to look at uh, and and something I get behind, I have gotten behind. Um, I do think continuing to recognize the regional nature and the importance, ongoing importance of advocacy at the state and national levels. I'm not as give. I'm not as forlorn about the national uh, direction i think we've got some friends who really do take affordable housing seriously Uh, and i think the the recent um, rescue plan and the infrastructure plan have very substantial uh, uh, steps forward in this stuff and that's it really is a national market that we need to to deal with and and do our part locally too
1: we have about 15 minutes to go if you have a question or a comment send them to us news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and send us questions there at noon edition. Sarah?
6: For us, we got a question about shelters. And uh, the question is, what's the potential for making more short-term opportunities like low barrier shelters available? The socioeconomic effects of the pandemic are not going away.
3: Yeah, agreed. And 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 um, I'll say that um, sheltering is incredibly complicated uh, from a zoning standpoint and trying to even find properties that are um, that where you can put long term shelters is uh, very difficult and, and expensive. Um, so um, but I, but I think there's another kind of concern that I have about sheltering in general, which is I'm supportive of it, although obviously um I I think there's a way in which we often go directly towards um, sheltering as the way to deal with homeless issues. And my um, concern is that we get in a fight about as a community every few years about when street homelessness becomes more prominent and we start to see a significant growth in in street homelessness. And and the core of that fight, We've attempted to solve over the years with with sheltering and and increasing sheltering, but in my my view, the fundamental issue in our community, the 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 gap or the kind of the bottleneck in our community is housing, and and if we continue to um, build sheltering without a real sincere effort to address um, shelter to address housing, uh, we're going to continue in these fights for years and years and years. We have to look square in the eye, this fundamental issue of housing affordability in our community, and we have to fix it. We can't keep uh, relying on um, sheltering to solve our homeless, our street homeless issue. Um, and and so that's, so that's challenging and, and, uh, and, and hard to talk about. But, but the reality is the bottleneck in our system is the, ha- is housing, and we have to solve
1: that problem. I wanted to ask uh, Kyle Arbuckle from, National Low Income Housing Coalition, and also uh, Andrew Bradley from Prop- Prosperity Indiana. Forrest mentioned the program in Austin that he thinks has a lot of potential. What other programs have you seen around the country or around the state that you think would would have promise and would be good strategies for to pursue? Kyle. Yeah, um,
5: one of the biggest ones that we've seen, especially during the pandemic, is the FEMA sheltering program, the hotel sheltering program, where uh, FEMA will reimburse states and localities at 100% um, to provide hotel shelters, hotel sheltering for um, people experiencing homelessness. And, you know, something else that came out of Austin recently, not to rock the boat too much, but they also uh, shifted funding from their public safety resources to permanent supportive housing. Um, you know, considering that they have uh, a very, a very acute homelessness problem in their city as well, um, I think those are two of the biggest ones. Andrew can probably speak to maybe some of the other ones around the state of Indiana that he's seen.
4: Um, and I'd like to underline what Kyle just mentioned about that FEMA um, funding, he said at 100% uh, which could uh, allow some of these uh, hotels and motels that have been sitting largely unused for the past year to be able to be put to use to, to help uh, increase housing stability and that's a key puzzle piece that's sitting out there in between some of the longer term supply issues that we've been talking about and also the shorter term Uh, housing stability and eviction problem issues that we have and a a couple of things that I'd like to mention at the state level in terms of solutions that we could be looking for is Indiana really does have some opportunities that it's missed this year but aren't going to go away in terms of making sure that we help those who have fallen through the gaps. So even though in the past year, there's only been two weeks in Indiana where there hasn't been an eviction moratorium in place, either at the state or the federal level. um, Indiana has seen over 38,000 eviction filings over that time. And we have um, been working with eviction lab from Princeton University to get county level data. And what we've seen is that those rates have only gone up of eviction filings since SEA 148, the eviction bill passed. Um, in February and most strikingly the the highest rates of increase have been in some of the more small town and rural parts of the state. So it, it really points to that there needs to be policy solutions to help address that to prevent it, but to help those who do slip through the cracks, uh, we've been working on solutions to create an eviction expungement process to create a right for tenants to see their tenant screening records. Uh, to create problem-solving housing courts to test effective remedies for tenants and landlords. Unfortunately, all of those were left on the table uh, during the General Assembly. So there's going to need to be a lot of work done over the next year and into the next session um, in order to to be able to help these people in the short and
1: the long term. Kyle, anything? any other uh, programs more on the affordable housing as opposed to the sheltering? area that you can point to?
5: Yes, that is a great question. And I think um, this would be a perfect time for me to plug that campaign that I was talking about, that Andrew is actually working very closely with us on. So we have a housed campaign, H-O-U-S-E-B. Um, we capitalize the U and the S to emphasize universal and stable. Um, so uh, President Biden, before he took office, said that he wanted to make sure that everyone who needed a voucher could get one. Currently, only um, one out of four people that need a voucher receive one and NOHC is committed to bridging that gap and also other programs as well. So we wanna increase supply as well. One of the big programs that we advocate for is the housing trust fund, um, the national housing trust fund. Um, As I think Forrest mentioned that Bloomington has their own, I think that's great. I think uh, a lot of states and localities have those um, dedicated streams of funding for building housing for low income renters, and I think that's great, but we wanna expand the national one um and provide those resources Forest that Forest said is missing, and the mayor, um, and the right that are missing from states and localities. So expanding the housing trust fund, um, addressing the public housing backlog and repairs. There's about seventy mil- billion dollars in deferred maintenance in public housing across the country. Um, and also, we want to increase renter protections. So allowing people that do have vouchers get into housing. There's a lot of source of income discrimination rampant across the country, across Indiana. Um, And we want to be able to protect renters that have vouchers or um, any type of other housing subsidy. And we also are very interested in um, less restrictive zoning laws. So those four buckets are part of this campaign and we have a slew of legislation that's already been introduced that we're hoping will be reintroduced and um, that the Biden administration will seriously consider these um, proposals. They've already signaled that they're very open to it. Um, I saw today actually that um, the president's skinny budget came out and it was about um, several trillion dollars and it included um, a lot of focus on social services and housing and his infrastructure package does as well. And we're seeing um, pretty broad support from a lot of Democrats in Congress. Um, we're not seeing a lot of bipartisan support, but we're hopeful that, you know, we can get this across the finish line and get a lot of legislation that would increase funding and, um, you know, increase functionality of these programs. So that's a lot of what NYC is working on. And like I said, Andrew's working very closely with us on that as well, along with other, our other state partners.
4: And if you don't mind me chiming back in for just a sec, you know, on this housed campaign, this is something where at the state level, we're really wanting to be able to connect with Hoosiers and be able to tell these stories. We've already started the conversation on this campaign with both the U.S. senators as well as the local uh, Congressman Hollingsworth. Uh, but we could use more support for this um, if folks go to ProsperityIndiana.org or Housing for Hoosiers with the number four. Um, that's the way you can sign up and you can help us tell your stories uh, with your congressional delegation on this campaign.
5: Absolutely. Right, absolutely.
6: So, so Forrest, just a couple of quick questions that we got in, and one is about the capacity of churches to help just um wondering if they can really step up and help people and like let them stay there overnight restrooms would be available it would be warm and the other question is about the building just south of kroger along the beeline trail can't we put that to use
3: yeah, I, I haven't looked into that building south of Kroger, so I'd have to have to check. I, I think what uh, a lot of people um, don't know about and in, in, uh, churches have these regulations, too, is that there are an enormous amount of uh, zoning regulations that make uh, sheltering uh, expensive and difficult. Um, the interfaith winter shelter, for example, was only able to operate um, uh, as it did uh, because of the limited number of nights that people stayed at each church. Um, and if, if people were to stay at the church for more than 30 nights a year, suddenly a lot of, a lot of additional um, regulations kick in and um, make it, make it much more challenging financially. So um, there are certain areas in the, in the city that currently allow um, homeless shelters um as a conditional use and um, uh, but many other areas require other restrictions and so require other um, you know approvals and such so it's not an easy process at all to 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 uh, build sheltering in our community. Um,
1: Yeah yeah I want to ask you for us uh, and uh, Mayor Hamilton we only have just we have about two minutes to go, so just want an update on Crawford Homes. You know that's been uh, looked at as a success story in town. Both of you worked hard on it. Uh, I don't know how many years ago it was now that Crawford One opened, but um, can you give us an update on what's going on there? How many people are, are housed, and how's the um, housing first model has it been successful?
3: Yeah, it, it absolutely is uh, profoundly successful. Um, it 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 doesn't always feel that way to some people looking from the outside because they don't fully understand it. But one of the things that we've seen is that the, in the people who are um, living uh, in those homes that um, that who had previously been long-term homeless on the streets, that they're we're showing massive improvements in both their health and in their um, Redu- and reductions in their uh, interactions with the criminal justice system, like 90% reductions in interactions with the criminal justice system. So, so dramatic uh, improvements in that way. It's it's by far not a cure-all, um, and so people still have struggles. There still are people active with active substance use issues and 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 things like that, and there are still great challenges and needs for uh more investment in in uh, the people who live there but it's definitely working and and uh and accomplishing what we hoped it would there's two Crawford apartments right now and there and there's uh, 63 units in those two apartment complexes um I remember um
2: Forrest it was in I think it was in the Episcopal Church downtown that that uh Shalom I was on the board and you were advocating and we took that step to say we're going to get into this permanent supportive housing even though we were a day shelter and that was a big step for the organization and I think the right one and as you've said I think it's made huge difference in those lives and it's the right thing housing first is the right policy. Um, and uh, you know it's going to be an issue in front of the council as these less restrictive zoning laws <laughs> come forward. That my ears perked up as I heard that from <laughs> from uh, Kyle. Uh, but you know this takes work on all fronts. It takes collaboration from government, nonprofit, private sector, different levels of government. Uh, I am hopeful that we can move the ball forward. We have a much more supportive federal government now. Uh, and and this this money coming in uh, with the rescue plan will make a big difference so we're going to be deciding how to invest that so people can get involved at the city council to help steer this into some of these uh, and some of these housing solutions i think it's an exciting opportunity ahead of us
1: all right we are out of time i want to thank you all for this conversation today it's a very difficult issue and i think we uh, made a lot of headway and Explaining about the issue and offering some decent strategies and solutions. So thank you very much to Forrest Gilmore from Beacon Incorporated, John Hamilton, the mayor of the city of Bloomington, Andrew Bradley from Prosperity, Indiana, and Kyle Arbuckle from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Uh, for our uh, producer, Benta Boutier, for Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, for John Bailey, our engineer, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition.
0: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.